Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Bodak. I'm here with Jeff Colvin. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. How about you? I'm very good. And I told you that I did your recording really fast. I like asked the editor to do it first because the students in my class watched your video. And so I wanted them to get a chance to listen to it right away. So this is the fastest I've turned one around in a long time. But the students really love your stuff. And I love that. It's not just telling people information, although it does, but it motivates them to do the work and not just read books and write papers, which is, of course, important, but do things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm delighted to hear that. I mean, obviously, that's kind of the objective here, but uh, one never knows. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, Maybe a couple of them bought your books, too, I hope. Yeah, well, there's, that's always good, of course. Yeah. And also, since last we spoke, you there are a couple of things. There was one is that I believe you were going to climb a hill, something like that. Yes. And also, it seems a lot of people, when we go through the Spodic method, they just go through it. But my read on you was that you were also thinking about this as a technique, as a pedagogical technique, as something, as a leadership technique, as something other than just you going through. I'd love to go into both of those. And yeah. any, any preference on which to go first? Good question. I suppose the logical thing is to talk about what I did first, and then we'll talk about, because that, that might make it in a way easier to talk about the you know, more broad topic. All right, let's start there then. And now before saying what you did, uh, I asked you what the environment meant to you. And do you remember what you said, what prompted leading to the commitment that you made? And then what was the commitment? Yeah, what really prompted it, the essence of my response was that for me, it has a lot to do with personal experience all through my life, and specifically personal experience in the natural world, outdoors. I was born and raised in South Dakota. I, I grew up, I, I lived outdoors practically, which was the norm at the time. Kids my age just did that. And all year round, regardless of weather, you, you just pretty much lived outdoors. And it was obviously a largely rural place. And I, I, I just loved it in a million different ways. And I have always done so. And I still absolutely love it. And so that was what it means to me at some deep level. I mentioned also that I am as I said, I'm nowhere close to where you are in sustainability, but I do pay a lot of attention to the old slogan of reduce, reuse, recycle. And I, I, that's always present in my mind, in my day-to-day -day activities. I, I get by with surprisingly little of an awful lot of things. So that's where it came from. So what was I going to commit to do? I'm in Steamboat Springs, Colorado where we have a little condo. And um, I just thought, okay, I, as we talked about in the episode, I was just going to go on a hike, which I love to do, but I was going to do it thinking about everything we talked about. I was going to do it starting from the front door of the condo. I wasn't going to drive any place. I was just going to walk and and just have the experience and be thinking about what we had talked about. So that's what I did. The way you put it at the end, sounded, what's the word? It sounded like a Norman Rockwell painting of, I was just going to go out and walk or, or Huckleberry Finn. And yeah. how did it go? It went just great. It went just great. When we spoke, I, I said, so I'll probably just walk up a, a hill or mountain, which is my usual hike here. 
for obvious reasons. You walk up uh, the side of a mountain and when you get to wherever you're going, you have some incredibly beautiful view to look at from up there. And it's just absolutely glorious. So it's a great thing to do. But I thought, you know what, this time I, w- I want to do something different because I love it going up and looking at the beautiful views. But what I decided was for this one, I was going to instead stay in the valley and walk along the, the river. Here in Steamboat, the river is the Yampa River, and it's a very beautiful place. And so I thought I would walk up the river to parts of it that I had not ever walked on or in before. Uh, and since it's obviously midwinter and uh, it hadn't been above freezing almost ever for like multiple weeks past, I'll, I would walk on the river as well, because something I just love to do is when in, in the winter, go out on a lake or a river that's frozen and just stand out there and look around and walk on the ice. And I don't know why, but I just happen to love it. So that's what I did. And it was absolutely glorious. You see all kinds of things there. You Think of it as micro rather than macro. When you're on the mountain looking across the valley to the distant peaks, that's macro. When it's you're walking up the river, you're noticing the tiny things. And that was just a ton of fun. And I had a little bit of an adventure. I broke through the ice. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and I was walking on the ice near the bank. So it wasn't terribly deep. But still, I certainly wasn't expecting it. The ice broke. I plunged forward. And basically, I was soaked from the hips down. Oh, that's a lot. Um, Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot of water. And the temperature, it was a beautiful day. But it was probably 10 degrees, 10 or 12 degrees. And so I immediately climbed out. And I had thought about this. I, I knew stuff like this happens from time to time. So I had thought about it. I have to say... It wasn't that bad. Fortunately, I was not far from the condo. I was able to walk back to the condo in probably 20 minutes. And I wasn't suffering. I give a lot of credit to wool long underwear, which does, as advertised, keep you warm even when it's wet. And so in retrospect, this actually made me feel more connected to the river than I think if it hadn't happened, because it's a reminder of why we love the wild, love nature, that when you're really in it, stuff like this happens, and that's just part of life in the natural world, meaning it's distinct from looking at beautiful stuff through a window in a van or something like that. When you're in it, you take these chances. Sometimes things happen, you deal with them. And in a way, it makes you think about life in a way that's never going to happen if you're not having experiences like that. Overall, by the time I got back to the condo, my trousers were largely frozen. I, I couldn't actually take off my parka because the zipper was frozen shut. I had to pull it up over my head. I could hardly untie my boots because the shoelaces were all wet and then frozen. Overall, it was just, it was a great experience. So that's that's how it turned out. 
I'm picturing you at the end getting home and you're lurching around like Frankenstein's monster because your legs can't bend at the knee. <laughs> that was pretty much it. And you're pretty like much probably asking the neighbors, please come by with your burning pitchforks to melt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, just about. It was a little weird. But it was, in, in retrospect, it was actually just great. What it connects with most in me, and I was, I don't know if everyone else is going to get this feeling, but for me, when I was a kid, my dad is a professor. He had a sabbatical at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And mm. the lakes that's on an isthmus and the Lake Mendota, Winona, I forget the exact names of the lakes, they freeze over and everyone goes skating. Right. And they, you brought me right back there to being a kid on the ice and all the other kids on the ice. Kids go on rivers and ice. Yes. Adults can too. Yeah. My, my dad did. Right. But kids have the fun. And I, you're, I was right there. And I guess that and... And that scene in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind when they go on the Charles River. And I mean, I just love that movie. And I don't know if you remember it, but there's- I've, I've never seen it. I, I, it's a very famous movie, but I've never seen it. I recommend it. There's a scene where they're on the, they walk out on the ice and there's something right. about being on the ice that's, what is it? Visceral? It's child, childlike. Yeah. It's a part of nature. Yeah. It's humble. You could, anyone could fall through. I'm glad to hear it wasn't so bad. <laughs> or that, that it was positive, that it was a connection. It was. I'm glad to hear that this brought you back. I, I feel the same way, and I've never really thought deeply about it, but there is something really fundamental about walking on frozen, a frozen lake or river. I don't know what it is. I'm sure others have thought about it. But I mean, the powers at hand are so much greater than a human. We can't, I can't freeze anything with my hands. I, can't, I can heat something up. I can't freeze anything. I don't know what, how thick ice gets it. They would drive a truck out on the lakes in Wisconsin. Right. So it could be very thick. And so this is like very powerful. This water is somehow solid. <laughs> we know that, but the river is completely transformed by powers beyond our, to some extent, it's within our comprehension, but not really. Yeah. It's really, yeah. we can look up at the Milky Way and wonder at its vastness, as you talked about, looking across a great mountain scene. But also everywhere we look, there's these details that are, microcosms of everything yeah really true I, sorry no go ahead I, but i have very similar feelings about it it's all right there all the time now i'm gonna one of the things i, I really bothers me is when like people talk about ecotourism and they talk about how they're going to go up the amazon and let's just all right i do not believe the carbon offsets work i think that they accelerate pollution but let's just imagine that they did let's imagine you could travel without any pollution Right. It still says that nature is over there. It's right. just, and there's a little bit left. And so I'm talking to you, I see the plant behind you. Every leaf of that plant yeah. is nature. Every, yeah. It's everywhere. And to the extent that we say it's somewhere else, we allow ourselves to trash where we are. <clears throat> I don't think we'd have nearly as much litter around if we didn't think that I'll get away from this. Probably everyone listening to this knows, probably almost everyone that everyone listening to this, probably everyone they know, at least once a year gets at least a thousand miles away from their home as a, right. as a need to escape. This is a neediness. This is not a benefit. And one of my great discoveries, yeah, here's, I want to feel like a kid. When you're in Manhattan, if you want, we could join. I, I know where all the berry trees are near me, especially the June berries. Oh, and wow. In the middle of Central Park, I know where a mulberry tree is. Yeah. And it's like 50 feet tall. And when I stand there, 
my feet are sliding around as if I'm on snow because there's so many mulberries on the ground. And each one to me is like, that could have been eaten. It's not like the tree wants me to eat it. It's not breaking anything. And when I'm eating the mulberry, the the mulberries and the June berries, long-time listeners of the podcast, I've said this before, but I feel like both a child because like filling my mouth up with these things because they're so delicious. As far as I know, they're like full of antioxidants and all sorts of, you know, great, healthy things. I also feel like better than a king. Because if I were a king and I said to someone, get me some berries, they could not get them to me any riper or any fresher than me getting them right there. I couldn't have a better life. Maybe I'm extrapolating too much from just eating the berries to a, a life, but it's, it's right there. Right. That's in Manhattan. Right. Off Manhattan, there can be yet more. We keep paving it over. Yeah. I'm so glad and interested to hear you say that because I don't live in Manhattan anymore, but I lived in Manhattan for a long time. I still come in for work, but I lived in Manhattan for a long time. And I had very similar feelings actually about Central Park. I spent a lot of time in the park and people who don't live there may not realize, actually a lot of people who do live there may not realize that there's so much to it. And just leaving alone all the other parks in New York City, which are farther away and in some cases very large, but even in Central Park, there are places that most people don't know anything about. And it's like what, like you say, you discover the mulberry tree or other things that you have to do a little work, a little walking and exploring and pushing through the brush sometimes to find, but it's there and it's wonderful. I wonder if you could walk us through the, what was the emotional experience of this the whole journey from when you yeah. first went from our last conversation to planning, to walking, to the moment of the ice cracking. Yeah. <laughs> to now. Oh, yeah. What you're asking is very important because I knew that, and you knew also that I would be taking this walk. I would be bringing a different mind to this experience than I probably do normally, even when I you know just decide I'm going to go out on a, a substantial walk. So I was thinking about everything we had talked about uh, the last time. And so I'm thinking, okay, what am I really going to be seeing here? What's the kind of, what, what's the larger thought, the, the larger context, maybe I should say, for this? Here's a, it's a river that's not very big going through the middle of a valley in Northwest Colorado. All water in the West There are issues surrounding it, surrounding the use of the water. And so the Yampa River is a thing that is, to some extent, managed like all rivers or almost all rivers in the West. But I had never thought much about it. So now I was going to go walk along it and observe and think about it. I wanted to just absorb the experience and enjoy the experience and just let it affect me. But I also was thinking about this uh, river and what it meant to the whole area here. And so I, I, and what I realized was I didn't know that much. And so one thing I realized is that I I really ought to know more. There's a kind of a floodplain area that is very nearby here. And that has been to some extent managed, but I don't know that much. So I decided, yeah, one thing, I had to learn a little more about this because this is a really important thing in this area besides being absolutely beautiful. And 
as per the experience, I there was still a little snow on the ice. And there were parts where there are little bywaters where it really was like a little lake. And that really was frozen, absolutely solid. So there are a lot of footprints in the snow there where other people had walked. A lot of paw prints. And I realized that I'm no good at all in identifying paw prints. So I don't know which what animals they were, except I'm pretty sure they weren't all dogs. I think there were a lot of small animals, foxes and stuff like that. We do have a lot of elk and moose that come into town from time to time, but there were no no big ones on here. Lots of uh, people. And then I just started walking up to an area that I'd never walked before. And I have to tell you, just like you, I was brought back to childhood. When I used to walk up the Little River, we, the Missouri River was the big river, the Little River was the Vermilion River, and that would freeze very solid. And I would walk up and down that through the snow. And I still remember it clearly. Somehow it made a deep impression on me. So all of that was coming back to me too. And it was all these idyllic thoughts I was having when my foot went through the ice. And, <laughs> and that's interesting because, as people always say, at that point, you don't think anymore some other part of your mind is engaged and you just act automatically. I just obviously realized I had to get out of the water as fast as I could. There was no danger at all. It wasn't very deep. There wasn't like a a rushing current of water under the ice or anything like that. So I, I wasn't in any danger. I was only in danger of discomfort, which wasn't much of anything. So I had to climb out of the water, which was not hard. And I guess I I was surprised at how, matter of fact, uh, it all got done. I crashed through. I instantly knew what the situation was. I climbed out. wasn't that hard. And all was well. And all of that happened within a few seconds. And after that, it was walking home, wondering if I was going to have frozen feet or legs and realizing that I wasn't. And, uh, And then just reflecting on the experience. For a writer, I bet thinking of the story to tell. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that is true. That is true. To make it a good story, it would largely have to be kind of an inner story because the story itself is pretty minor. But to me, it was significant. Well, there's something visceral about, visceral about falling through ice into water, however yes, shallow. Sir. Everyone knows the feeling of cold water on their skin. Yeah. And the risk of going on the ice is that. Yeah. Yeah. Because that water is as cold as water can be without being ice. You know, I never noticed until you just mentioned it, that the feeling of childhood that comes with this experience of nature, I never thought of this before, but maybe it's not a connection to childhood, but a connection to something human that children get. But as we age, we get taught out of it, or we Mm -hmm. become a part of a world that's Mm -hmm. different from Mm -hmm. it. And maybe it's Mm -hmm. something human that we've cut, that our society, our culture cuts us away from, that maybe in our ancestral past, that was a lifetime emotional experience. I had never thought of it in that way, but as you say it, I'm probably nodding continuously through it because it sounds absolutely right. Absolutely. For most of human history, we never would have stopped walking up frozen 
rivers and walking up hills and that because that would have been part of daily life, maybe for very practical reasons, but we never would have stopped. And now I'm thinking of, of, I've been very interested lately in the San Bushmen in Southern Africa. I had an author who studied them and lived with them. They've lived as they do the archaeological record. You can't say exactly how people lived. You just can find a few remnants of, of them. Guess how long they, the archaeological, archaeological record shows that they've lived, as best we can tell, roughly as they did up until very recently as hunter-gatherers. I, I can't even imagine. I won't put you on the spot. But, or, but the, tens, um, tens of thousands of years. Hundreds of thousands of years. Hundreds of thousands. I would have guessed like 50, but it was 250,000 years, something like that. And we have this idea that the reason we put on fat so quickly is that our ancestors never knew where their next meal might come from. And so they had to protect themselves from starvation. But with your highest technology being a rock, you can't live on the border of starvation for 250,000 years. What it appears is that their diets are much more varied and healthy than ours, that they were living. Anyway, so I got very interested in them. And there's a video, a movie by the people who did my octopus teacher of them, oh, yeah. of a small group of them. And it shows them persistence hunting. And when one guy chases his one animal for like, I think it was six hours or a couple of days. I don't know how they recorded this because if you, how can you carry a whole camera around? In any case, they kept, they they show the guy and he's right there with the animal kudzu, or I don't know what it's called. Kuzu. I forget. And the animal is just looking at him like, end it, please. Like the thing that probably can't has no, it's completely overheated internally and so forth. And, but leading up to that, they show these hunters walking around and they become the animal. Like they start acting like the animal they're chasing. I believe in order to put themselves in that mindset and they're jumping around and stuff. And they talk, the the movie is called the great dance. I highly recommend Mm -hmm. it. And it's there. There's an experience that they have that, that I don't believe that there's anything particularly special about this experience. It's just one that they captured. But it tells me that I think that they had a richer emotional, social life than we do today. There's another one by about the Hadza in what's now Tanzania. And so they their record shows 50,000 years, something like that. And there's one of the many things that they have is that the Westerners that are interviewed every now they say that every now and then they like they'll run off. And the reason is that there's this bird and it's apparently the only known mammalian bird synergy that's known. So this bird can see bees and honey. And when it does, they don't create honey in hives, this particular bee. They grow it in the nook of a tree way high up, like 20 feet up. So you can't see it from the ground, but the birds can see it. So the birds, when they see the honey, make some bird song that the humans then whistle back and the bird leads the humans to the honeypot. Now, so the humans climb up the tree, which itself is like this big effort. And then when they get the honey, they eat the honey, which is apparently the largest source of calories for these guys. I'm not, I, don't quote me on that, but, and then they leave the wax for the bird eats the wax. So this is a symbiosis that the bird couldn't get the wax otherwise. And they love the honey and the pot, it's honey plus all the maggots inside. Like it ends up being more nutrition than just pure sugar. Yeah. And I'm like, this is amazing. 
And then they also show them grinding the the gourds and the, the root vegetables and things and making the bows. Kids at five years old get the bow. By 10, they're, and they get that small game. And then by 10, they're getting big game. 10 years old, five years old, they're hunting with bows. At the beginning, they don't get the poison. That comes later. Anyway, I'm not sure if this is coming across, but it looks like a rich, fulfilling life. No technology. And, and extraordinarily stable in terms of an enduring population. And today's world, if you say, if you talk about markets and economies, I think in America, they tend, it's, oh, if you don't embrace full-on capitalism, free market, you must be communist. This is neither. This doesn't fit into this. It, it, points, it, it says this dichotomy is false. They're not growing. They're not, uh, that's maybe getting far afield, but what I wanted to get at was the, the experience that you're talking about is available to us all. And I think most of us get spending time with kids, our own kids, especially I'm an uncle so with my nieces and nephews. That's wonderful. And I don't want anything getting in, in between that. Some things can augment it, but very little augments putting them up on my shoulder and walking around the room. And it's right there. I think we're missing out on something great. Yeah. Distracting ourselves from something great. Yeah. That all sounds utterly right to me. Yes, it's all there. I've thought about those same people, about the, the Bushmen also. And I'm very interested to know about these movies because I didn't know about either one of them. I became interested because of the persistence hunting angle and the whole idea of whether human beings were made, were intended evolutionarily to run or not. And the pre prevailing, because I run, I'm a fairly devoted runner. And the prevailing view for many decades was that humans were never meant to run. We were not, our bodies don't, we're, we're not made for running because look, of all the animals that run, we're the slowest. How could we have any evolutionary advantage that involved running? And so the advice, the, the conventional advice was always Look, we're not made, your body isn't made to run. If you insist on running, you're just going to have problems. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to have injuries of some kind or another. And it was then the discovery of persistence hunting, which as I understand it was only like 30 years ago, that, that research with the Bushmen discovered that, yes, that what they did was persistence hunting. They, they ran after a kudu for hours until it had to stop because it was overheated and then they would roll. But, the, but this changed the whole debate. And as far as I can tell, the uh, prevailing view now is that actually our bodies were made to run. But I became very interested in the whole persistence hunting thing uh, for that reason. And so everything I learned about the Bushman enforces everything you've just said. A rich life that they were able to maintain for countless generations and and rich in ways that I don't think we can even conceive of. You know, there's a guest on this podcast, Nir Eyal. I don't know if you know him. Uh, and he's written Indistractable. And he wrote another book, I think, called Hooked. Hmm. He runs barefoot. And yeah. I'd, I'd switched long before. I, I presume you've read Born to Run. Yes. 
And that was- So you know all this stuff I was just telling you, but yeah, okay. So I'd switched to minimal shoes, not the five fingers, very minimal shoes. And he actually ran full on barefoot. So I started doing that. And I've only twice now seen people running barefoot in Manhattan, but I see it every now and then. Besides myself, I'd be a third. Well, I'm interested to know that because I I run in the five fingers, Mm -hmm. but I don't think I've ever really run barefoot. So are you on pavement? Yeah, pavement. And if I can go on grass in the few places where there's, I run along the Hudson River. And so the Hudson Park is a few grassy places. In Central Park, I haven't run, I don't think I've run barefoot in Central Park. No, I don't think I have. But yeah, my first concerns were glass and and things like that. That hasn't been an issue. I'm looking. And at one point, I found myself, at first, I have to avoid the pebbles because that hurts. And then eventually, I realized that maybe my feet toughened up or something, but I started realizing that wasn't such a problem. So I imagine if I stopped on glass and I'd try to start bleeding, but I wouldn't, I don't know. Yeah. It wouldn't, it'd be like falling through the ice. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Interesting, but no big deal. I'm curious, you did this by yourself. Did, did, did this affect you? I did. did you interact with anyone along the way or did this, did you tell people about the story? Did you plan it with anyone? Did, did it affect any relationships? No, not really. I I did it entirely by myself. I didn't see a soul anywhere along the walk. It was in the morning. The only other person with me here in the condo is my son, one of my sons, who's a young adult. And I certainly told him about it because he would understand and be interested and so forth. And he was quite amazed that it happened and that I came through it as easily as I did. But, you know, that was about it. It's, he, there wasn't really much more after that. I could keep talking about this, but I want to go back to what the bifurcation at the beginning of the call of how this affected other things. And you, I think your main work is writing at Fortune magazine? It, it, yes, it, it's really two things. It's writing for Fortune and it's speaking, which is, I give speeches at a lot of conferences and stuff like that, or moderate conferences and stuff, which is something I really enjoy doing. But that's not a day-to-day thing, Fortune is. is your, am I right that your audience or your community there is going to be business people? Absolutely. People striving for success in business, probably a lot of entrepreneurs, probably a lot of heads of companies. Yes. So when you said you... You talked about this experience. Actually, prior to this experience, just reduce, reuse your cycle, you said, as part of your life. Yes. Often people view that as somehow contrary to business. Others would say, if if properly integrated, it works very well. And also, you talked about this experience being taking you to a childhood experience. And how does this experience with nature jibe with this community and the community norms and values and beliefs and stories of the fortune community, if that's a good name for it. Yeah. In, in a number of ways, as work becomes less and less physical across the economy, we can see people, I don't even quite know how to articulate this because I probably have never really tried to articulate it before, but these issues of deep humanity seem to become more urgent for everybody. As I say, it's hard for me to explain or articulate, but there is clearly a 
an issue in the business world of people feeling they have a full or complete life. It's not just COVID that has caused the big increase in employees using the mental health benefits that are available to them through their employers, at least through big employers. Work is increasingly becoming more separated from our from parts of our human essence. It becomes more and more analytical. I first noticed it many years ago at Fortune. because, And of course, the, most of our work now is online, but for most of my time at Fortune, we were publishing, and we still publish a magazine, a printed magazine. And so this is a very visual medium as well as being uh, print words. And uh, I noticed some many years ago that it was getting harder and harder to take photographs for our articles because more and more of everything we wrote about was done at desks with computers or infotech of some kind. If you go back to the original Fortune magazines of the 1930s, the photography was breathtaking because it was gigantic turbines and gears and the Hoover Dam and it was the railroad locomotives. It was just uh, fabulous. And, And more and more, no matter what company you're writing about, and often more and more of it is just people looking at screens. And the larger issue is that's really not a very human experience. And our humanness hasn't changed in the past X hundred thousand years. And it's rebelling against this. So I see a real, there are issues being worked out. Let's put it that way, that we haven't worked out. I should think more about it so I can express it more articulately, but you probably get the direction I'm going. I think that there's yeah, there's a disconnect from probably what our ancestors evolved to really embrace and made their lives probably very rich, not borderline dying all the time. Yeah. And that I think that if we simply, if we don't consciously, deliberately act to restore that, I think we'll easily sleepwalk into the, the pattern will continue. There's too much money to be made by keeping people locked in, not locked in, but if it's not too loaded a word, if we do something that we, that makes our lives worse, but in the moment it makes it better. I, I call it addiction. Yes. And I'm not the first person to describe cell phones and, and screens as right. addicting. That's for sure. And it's very easy to sleepwalk into that. Yes. And people who read my blog and listen to my podcast a lot, will hear me talking. I talk a lot about addiction. And by Washington Square Park, which is now full of meth and fentanyl and heroin and litter, the litter around people who use, who are addicted is, I believe that, I think at the heart of it, it's like, well, tomorrow's not going to be any better than today. Society has nothing to offer me. I have nothing to offer. So what what do I have to offer that? Why should I get up and walk that over the trash can when I can just drop it on the ground? But it's not just, I say that about fentanyl and meth, but it's the people who are addicted to salt, sugar, fat. Everyone who walks into the place, virtually everyone walks in with something disposable to stick in their mouth or wrapping something that they're going to stick in their mouth. And the amount of litter produced by them is just as great. They're just richer. So it's not quite, but the volume is much greater. And that's nothing of what they're doing to heat their homes and things like that. 
And the alternative, I think, is sometimes falling through the ice and realizing that all fits with what I've seen. And it's, we're getting into uh, very deep issues now, and I don't feel fully even qualified to talk about them. But, but yeah, I've felt exactly the same way. I, sir, I, look, we've all had the experience of, as you say, sleepwalking into addiction to this device. That's a cell phone for people who couldn't. For yeah, I'm, so I don't know if it was clearly, it's uh, just a, an ordinary iPhone. And one thing I have paid particular attention to actually is the addiction part of it, the idea and the effect it's having on people, especially younger people. And you're with them every day at the university. I'm not, but, but I still observe and hear from a lot of teachers and others who are who are are in touch with young people that it's clearly affecting them and that talking face to face in person can be stressful for some of them and what i've heard actually if i remember vividly from one professor was that picking up the phone and calling somebody was something that some students had to prepare themselves for at at length because of their anxiety about doing so. And the the reason I'm saying this is that it all gets back to our most essential humanity, where talking in person, face-to-face, is an almost magical experience when you do all the analysis of what's happening in our brains and so forth. And fewer people are having that experience. It's a profound change in the way we live. I'm going to propose, and I bet you'll agree, that there's an equal thing of walking through the woods. Yes. Experiencing nature directly. Yes, meaning that people have no concept of doing it or how to do it. And is that where you were going? The anxiety about that also, but what what I was saying at that particular moment was the benefits to the brain, to our... Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've read uh, about psychiatrists who prescribe it. Mm-hmm. I, absolutely. But I, I believe it, not because I'm a psychiatrist, but because of personal experience. Yeah. I always say here that when someone says food is medicine, I always say, or that nature is medicine. I always say, I'm going to say something logically equivalent, but with a different feel to it, which is that that says that not nature is normal and nature improves normal. Right. But I say nature is normal and lack of nature hurts your health. Right. Lack of interaction with people hurts your health. Lack of vegetables. Vegetables is normal because to me that motivates eating more vegetables. It motivates right. walking in the park more. That's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Like nature is a remedy. It's not a remedy. It's the way our lives were meant to be. It's the way we, it's, the, it's the living the way we evolved to live. Yeah, it's not a nice to have. It's a, uh, let's not lose it, but disregard it. Yeah. Avoid it at your peril. Yeah. A good way to put it. Earlier you said, I'm not as, about yourself, that you're not as sustainable as me. Given this view that we've been talking about this whole conversation, 
I think a lot of people look at what I'm doing as deprivation and sacrifice. And as I expected, it would be. When I said I'm going to avoid packaged food, I thought that means I'm not going to get the great food around because a lot of people can cook better than me. And if it comes to me in a package, I'm losing out on the better good stuff. Yeah. And has your view on that changed? Do you, like, is your view of what I'm doing different? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's funny though, because eating pack, I haven't eaten packaged foods in as long as I can remember, but that's just me. And it's partly because I read labels and I read the ingredients and stuff. And for a lot of things that if you buy packaged foods at the grocery store, pre, you know, like what I would call meals or pre-packaged food rather than ingredients. I, I'm not interested at all. I don't, I, like I say, in Manhattan, the temptation is much greater because you're surrounded by all these wonderful restaurants and stuff that where you can buy stuff that's really good. But still, I've been a, I eat very, very simply and I just buy ingredients and I make it all myself. And I figured out how to make things that I like that are not that hard and so forth. And I, I feel strongly about that. But when I look at what you've done, now you've got me thinking about all kinds of other things that I don't think that much about at all, like how much electricity I use, how I heat my house, and all this other stuff, that how much garbage I nonetheless produce. I hadn't thought very seriously about those, and now I do. I'm tempted to ask a question. I'm going to, and I hope I don't sound too like I'm extrapolating too far. Yeah. I'm sensing in you both, there's all this experience that you're having, which sounds wonderful. And I think also of, this is something that's been under your nose and you've been enjoying the walks up in the mountains. And even if you didn't do this particular walk in along the river, you've done walks like it, but I think the mindset changed it somewhat. Right. And I think that, I don't want to overstate this, but am I, has this awakened you to the possibility of bringing this to others, making like, this is not just something to pass like for one person to enjoy, but there's something missing, something, there's a leadership, a need of in our society for leadership that we are not, that is not, I'm not aware of it out there. I know a lot of people saying you should pollute less. You should do this yeah. from people who are not themselves living remotely sustainably. <laughs> so some right. would say I'm putting out hypocrisy, which is not what I'm saying. It's they don't know what they're talking about. They're, they themselves exhibit a life of valuing things that pollution brings or that can only come through pollution and dis dis dissociate ourselves from human connection to nature. Right. And if I'm not flattering myself, I'm offering, I'm bringing to the world, what I'm trying to do is bring a better future. Forget about the future, that's too abstract. A better life for ourselves immediately. Right. Not like, oh, it might work out for the best some other time. Or, oh, if you really try it, I know how much you like X, but you'll get used to this other thing. Right. But really immediately realizing we're missing out on something. And there's a big potential. That, to me, there's a giant gap of yeah. making this happen. Because if no one, anyone who isn't living it can't credibly or knowledgeably lead in that area. As far as I know, again, I'm, I, I hope I'm not flattering myself, but I'm bring, I, I think I have a potential to bring to the world, or certainly to the people I can interact with, movement, a style of, and method of leadership that, that can spread and develop into something bigger.
yeah. unnecessary. Yeah. yeah, that sounds absolutely right to me. And I hadn't thought about this explicitly before we were talking. So that, in it, and now I do think about it explicitly, that is an N equals one story or, or research in which your theory is working pretty well. But beyond that, it strikes me, what you're, what you've just, what I see you doing and what you've described does fit with everything I've learned uh, and probably I'm sure everything you've learned also with regard to people's behavior and how people learn and so forth. Hectoring people almost never works, but the two things that come that strike me most strongly are one, the most strike me most strongly about what you do is are are doing it. First, you are an example. As far as I can tell, so far in two talks and reading some of your things, you've never told anybody that they ought to do something, that they should do something. You offer an example. And then the other thing that strikes me is in one form or another, action learning is almost the only kind of learning that really works when it comes to how people behave. And it can happen in a million different ways. The basic paradigm, as you as a professor know very well, is if you want to teach somebody how to play tennis, you describe how to hit a certain shot. Then you show them video of Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal hitting that shot. And then you have them hit that shot and you can give them some kind of feedback. But the the basic way it's done is pretty simple. The idea of action learning in the realm that we're talking about now, having to do with sustainability and the power of nature and everything associated with it. That's just putting two things together that I had never thought about putting together. But it sounds to me like it ought to be, and I'm sure is, effective. I would think very effective. I don't know if you ever thought of it in those terms, but that's what strikes. Yeah, actually, for a long time, I'm writing this book on on the, the groundwork to launch, to go beyond one-on-one. Actually, so one-on-one, I can walk someone through an experience where they share an environmental value and act on it, something that they come up with themselves. And this is what my leadership book teaches. I usually put it in paraphrasing Eisenhower, leadership is the art of getting the other guy to do your thing for his reason. So I have to ask, what does the environment mean to you? Find out what the reason is, because there are many different things that can motivate someone. But I, don't, I didn't grow up in South Dakota. My mom did. And I didn't walk on the along the, the Missouri River. So I can't possibly lead you on that until I hear it. Now that requires me to behave and communicate in ways that make you feel comfortable knowing that I'm not about to judge you on these things. Because I think many people expect that if I share about my childhood growing up and someone says, Bangladesh, 100 million people are going to be displaced from their homes. And you're talking about the park at the end of your block. We have to, we need to scale. We need global solutions. Individual actions don't matter. So that's, that's not an effective leadership technique, that one. Well, it's effective at something, but not the goals that <laughs> they think. And people have a unique experience, but it's generally positive. And generally, they do more than they say that they will. They commit to something, and they come back, and they've done more. And the reward was greater, not just 
in magnitude, but in, in whole other, in like in different dimensions because of that experiential part of it. So I teach experientially. So that's, yeah. I thought for a long time that my great insight was to bring leadership to sustainability. I think that is a great insight. It's straightforward and just taking one thing, as you said, taking two things and combining them. Then it led me to, then I started doing the podcast and that led me to the next insight, which is that everyone from the average person on the street to the CEO of the most polluting companies in the world has something in them that motivates that if I ask, what does the environment mean to you? There's an answer, a deep, fulfilling, meaningful answer that motivates them. And the person may be, you know, deeply steeped in Ayn Rand and deeply into fossil fuels have lifted more people out of poverty and cured more disease than anything else. And no matter what you think, actually the free market allocates resources to the most creative and innovative people. And if we must let that solve things, and as crazy as it may sound, if fossil fuels pollute, but the market sends money to fossil fuels, we should still do that because that will, however crazy it sounds, that actually will solve the problem more effectively. Now, I don't agree with that. I think there's a bunch of flaws in there, but there are people who definitely strongly feel that way. And even they don't want mercury in their fish, but even they had some experience with nature and that became an, an insider discovery that came through practice. And that means that everyone in the world can be motivated for their own reasons to do this. So now the question is how to go from me talking to one person at a time to many. So there's two strategies there. One is to talk with influential people, such as yourself, people with voices, people with audiences. And someday Oprah will have this experience that you did. And 100 million people, if we do what the five people around us do, or the five people you look up to do, then 100 million people are going to be 20% of the way there to act, because someone that they know will have acted. And it's not, just, it's not acting, but going through this process of connecting with something and acting on an internal motivation, not just being told what to do. So that's community. Yeah, those are the two big things, community and people at leverage points of a system. And this is, this is what gets me out of bed in the morning, not gets me out of bed in the morning, but this is like why I'm deeply impassioned because I'm, the, the message you described as hectoring. And I think most people, including the most ardent environmentalists, still believe in their hearts and certainly through their behavior that we have to sacrifice and live without the great things that past generations had in order to prevent something catastrophically worse. And I think... While we do face catastrophe, I think that we're actually making our lives worse, materially, socially, emotionally, and that we're blind to it because as an addict tells him or herself that the high from the heroin is so great, but the net life experience is not, as people who have kicked it will test that exercise healthy diet, earning a living as opposed to turning tricks or whatever, stealing, like that's way better, even if you don't get that high. And, and the high goes away after a while. It, I could have picked any addiction there instead. Yeah. And it's this comfort and convenience and these things that are afforded by fossil fuels that when the person is addicted and doesn't know it, because we talk about alcohol and gambling as those are addictions, but we don't talk about this lifestyle. We talk about society being addicted to fossil fuels, but not individuals. And so we believe the stories that we say that without it, 
everything would fall apart and so forth. We believe those things. And only experience, I think, can kick us, can, can knock that belief. I expect that going without power is going to be a horror show. And then it ends up being an, a, a joyful experience. Oh, what told me that it was going to be horrible? That Now that can question that belief in a way that if I just tell you a bunch of facts, won't, will reinforce those beliefs. Right. This is so powerful, I think. And the analogy to addiction, I think, is also really good. I once heard addiction defined as behavior that's making your life worse, but you keep doing it anyway. And it lets people look all at everything in their life and think about whether it fits that definition. And if a person has the willingness and, and kind of the strength to apply that across their life, I think it's amazing what they might realize. And that's a lot. That's your point. I think it's a point that I've, I have a whole lot of N equals one examples or experiences. <laughs> and I think it's a point that if it starts spreading, could take over, could, you know, yeah. spread all over the world in, in this country it will face a lot of resistance and a lot of disbelief. But it's not the environmentalist case. It's not, it's definitely closely related. But I get really, oh man, sometimes I have environmentalists on the show and it's, they are some of the, put up some of the biggest resistance more than the Trump people to actually doing things because they are so opposed to the idea of an individual making a difference and I'm not saying your change is going to make the difference, but I think a lot of, I get from a lot of them, they shouldn't change as an, I think there's a feeling to lead someone, I have to understand them. And so I try to understand, I think that partly they think that if we solve it, if we have solved it, say that there's some, a lot of pollution going on and a bunch of people lower the pollution, but we don't actually, but we don't solve it completely. Then the people It'll be half solved and then we won't actually fully solve it when we really have to solve the full thing. So these little half solutions or partial solutions, they're opposed to because it it takes a, we might be working on the wrong, instead of a systemic issue, we're solving this little thing that's not related to the systemic issue. Now, I I don't see it that way. Systemic change begins with personal change. And I think also a lot of them feel like I'm already doing a lot. Look how much I'm doing. And if you make it sound easy, then I can't show how much I'm doing because I'm just having, like, you're saying what I'm working at is easy and fun. And now I I, I don't have as much to be applauded about. I don't know. That's a cynical view, but I think it might be there. Sounds right to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious if you planned on doing more of these walks yeah. And you, you've already done the walks. You'd went to a different place this time. Yeah. I think the key difference in this experience to your others was the mindset that you, you prepared yourself for in a different way. Are you going to keep doing that? Did I read that right? And if so, are you going yeah. to keep doing that? Yeah, absolutely. The lasting effect of this will include, um, and probably not be limited to, but will include doing a lot of things that are more or less things I've enjoyed doing before, but I'll bring a different mind to them when I do them. 
And, and so I will think differently about it. I will then think, I will probably think more about what I choose. You know, even though if it, even if it's just great experience of nature, I'll do different things and who knows where it's going to lead. I don't know. Uh, but your approach strikes a, a chord with me. And so I know I'll be thinking much more along these lines and it's profound. I don't know where it's going to lead exactly. I suppose that's impossible anyway, but whatever I'm doing, it's going to, it'll be changed by this. And, uh, and I have no doubt. It has to be in a good way. Do I sense in you beyond your own personal experience that you want to bring it to you? You have audiences. You have yeah. Your book has yeah. close to a thousand reviews. That's like a lot. <laughs> I was happy to hit over a hundred. <laughs> yeah. And on that, I'm certainly influenced by the thinking you've done on what's effective. And so how to do that with a business audience, the things that you have described, the, I haven't figured that out yet. But the fundamental approach that you have described Sounds very right to me. There will be ways because the the topics we're talking about come up in the business world a lot anyway. I'm tempted to say, let's do a brainstorming session, but I think that would open up a whole other thing. (laughs) I propose instead wrapping up with that. If this is starting to percolate in you, then to give you an open invitation to, if anything pops up, to come back and share what comes up next. Yeah. Yeah. That's good because I'm not at this point, I have to do a lot of thinking and having this in my mind as I see all the stuff that I see every day in my work and combining the two. So that'll take some work, but I'm very intrigued and very looking forward to bringing this perspective to what I do. Now I'm at the edge of my seat. I can't wait. And I know that reflection (laughs) takes time and it'll probably be aided by walks along rivers and up mountains. Yeah, for sure. Before wrapping up this episode, is there anything I didn't think to ask or anything worth sharing? I I don't think there is. The contrary, you went into areas I had never thought about and uh, that I think are very productive. No, I don't have anything to add to this. Then until next time, Jeff Colvin, thank you very much. Josh, it is a real pleasure. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.